0: Having taken a break to focus on the resurrection last week, we return to 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. But in returning, by no means do we leave behind the events of the cross or the wonder of the empty tomb. Indeed, we cannot. For the redeeming work of Jesus is crucial to every aspect of our worship to our King. It should be our daily joy to remember and thank God for the things that we spend extra time focusing on at Easter. That, the, that God the Son loved us to such a degree that He would give His only life for us. That He would condescend and take on human form to be with us. That He lived the life that each of us should live but are incapable of living on our own apart from grace. And that like a sacrificial lamb, He gave His spotless life to be punished in our place. But like a triumphant lion, He conquered death in the grave, rendering it disarmed and powerless against us. And all who put their hope and trust in him have been made alive and welcomed into a restored relationship with the creator it's amazing isn't it this grace that God has given to us too amazing to marginalize too amazing to pack up in the box that's labeled Easter decorations and store in the garage until next year and so we are always a resurrection people and and so so in many ways friends it is it's like Easter every Sunday for us no matter what day of the year it is And every passage in the scripture that we study together each week is valuable in that it sets for us the context of living in the light of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ the Savior. So throughout the first half of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul has not been bashful when it comes to addressing the sin of the people who lived in Corinth and called themselves followers of Christ. When the members of God's church violate the command of scripture, Paul is not bashful. He digs deep into the issue and he urges repentance. But sin and the correction of sin are are not the only reasons why Paul writes his letters. As a faithful apostle invested in the maturity and the growth of God's sheep, Paul wants the saints to know the difference between what is right and wrong, but he also desires to teach them the difference between what is good and what is in many ways better. Are there decisions that might be perfectly permissible for a Christian to make, yet still might fall short of the best and wisest course of action? Of course there are decisions like that. And so Paul will take some time to linger in the halls of wisdom with these Corinthians. That they might have a greater clarity regarding their freedoms in Christ and how they might choose to use that freedom to glorify the Lord. And so the passage that we are studying describes three different choices that a free christian might have to make each has advantages and disadvantages but each is permissible within god's sovereign plan and so let's read about them starting in verse 32 we are in 1 corinthians chapter 5 this morning we're going to be reading quite a ch- uh, crap sorry first corinthians chapter 7 we're going to be reading quite a chunk starting with verse 32 Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, then let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, And has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let's bow briefly and just ask the Lord to to guide us through the understanding of this Scripture. Lord, we know that no interpretation of Scripture is a matter of personal dispute, Lord. We, We don't get to decide for ourselves what these things say. We do not come to these passages and just say, Lord, how do I feel about this? And then determine that that must be the true meaning of these things. We know that... The word stands apart from us. It is eternal and it cannot be changed by time or by cultural context, Lord God. And so what we seek today is to know what you mean by it. Father, you have given these things to us for our blessing and our benefit and you've also given these, these things for your glory. And so I pray that you would apply them to us in such a way that the world might see in our obedience the love that we have for you now, that you have given us love for you. We thank you for that wonderful gift and we pray that you would increase it as we continue to see your face in the things that you share with us through scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wants the Corinthian uh, Christians to be free from anxiety. That's, that's what he says right up front, right? He wants us to be free from anxiety. And Jesus wanted that for us too, right? Do you remember the Sermon on the Mounts where Jesus mercifully commands us to not be a people consumed by worries. Matthew six twenty five. therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Paul and Jesus are very much so on the same page here. Paul goes on to point out that God is the ultimate provider. There is or Jesus, rather, in that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, goes out to provide that God is the ultimate provider for us, that there is nothing important that we need that He does not supply for us. The lilies of the field do not worry about the kind of clothing they will wear, and yet the Father in heaven adorns them in beautiful arraignment. They have outfits that are glorious and wonderful. The birds of the air don't stress over the kind of foods that they will eat or where they will get it from, They are well-fed, nevertheless, by God, even though they don't worry about these things. The point is that obsessing over the needs of this life, even though there is nothing wrong with food, there's nothing wrong with clothing, or any other number of essential things that we need to survive another day, there's nothing wrong with those things, but letting that dominate our hearts, letting our minds be fixed upon those things, and letting the potential lack of those things steal from us joy and confidence in God, that's a waste of time. If God has opened our eyes to the fact that He reigns, if He is sovereign and perfectly, uh, has perfect authority over all of His creation, then we don't need to worry about these things. And here is how much we need Jesus, okay? Many of us read a passage like Matthew 6, which is meant to ease the worry of our hearts, and then we become worried that we're worrying too much. We say, well, I didn't even know that worry was a sin. Now I'm a greater sinner than I thought I was. And then we stress Over our stress that God has told us not to have we allow our weak faith to turn a blessing from God into a burden is all worry sin surely God doesn't want us to be so carefree that we become like Woodstock hippies floating through life on some kind of spiritual high Letting all the stiffs concern themselves with dumb things like jobs and responsibility while we just frolic and sing songs and wait for the return of Jesus. Is that what God wants us to do? That can't be the case, right? He has called us to more than that. God desires growth from us. He starts us with milk like a little baby, but He wants us to grow to the point where we can digest meat, where we can take on more responsibility, where we can do things that glorify Him all the more. How can we expect to bear God's image well if we remain as infantile in this irresponsible state where we don't care about anything? We just, we just live for the glory of God, but we don't really care about anything around us. It doesn't seem to match up, does it? There must be room in our lives for legitimate concern. Even Paul expresses that he carries anxiety about the well-being of things like the church. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. 28, he says, And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul is saying that he wants us to be free from anxiety, but he's also confessing in the 2 Corinthian letter that he himself is not free from anxiety, nor really can he completely be free from anxiety, because we live in a world where anxiety is all around us. And the word for anxieties here is of the same root in the Greek that is used in Philippians 4, 6, which is a passage you're probably familiar with. In Philippians 4, 5 through 6, it says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. That's the Greek word for anxieties. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Philippians 4 urges us to not be like those who are anxious about things that don't matter, who run back and forth with all this pressure upon themselves about where they will live and what they will drive and, and who approves of them or does not prove of them and, and whether they will be considered successful when all is said and done, to not concern ourselves with those superficial stresses, but to consider the peace of God and to focus our hearts and minds on the eternal things that He has called us towards. Why should we be anxious about nothing? Because the first verses of the passage I just read, because the Lord is at hand. Along with salvation, we have been given the blessing of an eternal perspective on life. Hardships happen, but God is working all things to the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So the Lord is at hand. That has both a present and eternal aspect, as we've spoken about in the last couple of weeks, that God is currently our King. He is reigning on the throne. We have every reason to believe that He is in charge of all that happens. And yet we also look forward to the coming of the Lord, which could happen at any time, that He will return to establish for us a new heavens and a new earth, which is in so many ways, in every way, superior to what we see around us today There will still be concerns in this life, but they are always tempered by the greater knowledge that God is in control and that his return is imminent. And so we will be concerned about these things, but we must identify and let go of unnecessary concerns. And even the necessary concerns of life are not hard to shoulder considering that Christ is our ever-present help in times of need. So this is the nature of our battle with anxieties, Now, there are many benefits to having a legitimately unhindered mind, a mind that is not shackled with the chains of stress and endless worry. A carefree mind can concern itself more fully with devotion to the Savior. We can avoid that scenario that is often called today paralysis by analysis where we overthink every decision and every move and and then don't ever end up doing anything because we're so busy analyzing stuff and worrying about making a wrong choice that we make no choice at all, which is very often the definition of a wrong choice. We can avoid that paralysis by analysis that plagues our heart. And we do that by walking in faith in the Lord. We filter the kinds of anxieties that cannot profit us out of our consciousness, consciousness, when we are carefree of mind. Remembering that the Lord said, who can by worrying add even a single hour to his life? No one can. And that lets us dwell more fully on the things that actually have eternal benefit to us. We set aside the things that we don't have control over. We let the Lord handle it. And the things that we do have a little bit of control over, we take responsibility for them, knowing that God has control of those things too. And that if we do a good job in in trusting in him that he will do what he wants to do, in our decisions, in our choices. So while no path can be 100% carefree, we live in a fallen world after all, right? Paul's insight aims to help his reader consider a path that might be less prone to anxiety and therefore better suited to a focused and devoted discipleship. Now the pastoral heart of this passage is found not in verse 1, but in verse, or verse 30, 32, our first verse, but actually in verse 35, which is kind of in the middle of the passage. And this middle verse acts as a hinge around which the rest of the passage really swings and rotates. Here Paul explains why he's going to the trouble of sharing these details with his Corinthian brothers and sisters. So in verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Bless you. And when he says this, he says, I say this for your benefit, that this is referring to this whole section of meaning and truth that we're studying this morning. All of what Paul says here is for our benefit, and by extension, for the benefit of our witness to the world. There is great freedom in Christ. Freedom from the slave master of sin that used to reign over us. If you are sitting here today, and you were once lost, then you are now found then you know the joy and the relief of not being so hindered and tied down by the sin nature that used to call the shots in your life. You know how different it is now to be set free from those urges that used to compel you and make you behave in ways that you knew deep down in your heart were an offense to God, but you couldn't choose away from it. Now in Christ, you have a power greater than your own, a power that has unlocked the chains and has set you free from that prison. You have a good and holy king. You are no longer a slave in that sense where you cannot do the things that you wish you could do. Now God has freed you and you are a thankful and willing doulos, bondservant to the king, willing to serve him, but free from those urges that used to dictate your identity. We have freedom from the burden. Of redeeming ourselves. What a freedom this is, friends. That we don't have to look at all that is out of order in our lives and then think, how am I going to set all of this straight? Because Christ is our Redeemer. We know that He is the one who causes the first causes to to make these things start to fall into order. He is the one who pushes us in the direction of righteousness and grace. He is the one that saves our wretched heart and brings us to life. We don't have to earn our way back to heaven. We are brought to heaven as guests and given the gift of a relationship with him that is right and eternal. It is not something that we must strive and earn. It is not something that we must do by our own strength and power and wisdom. It is not some secret hidden truth that we have to unravel and and find for ourselves. No, this is what Christ has given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're free from the burden of redeeming ourselves. And we've experienced also freedom from the self-deception that a life of happiness can be lived apart from God. And you see people walking around almost zombie-like in the world today, just trying to make themselves content, but the source of true contentment is nowhere near them. They find things that they think will fill the void of emptiness in their lives. They find pursuits that they think will spark some kind of lasting joy and perhaps for a moment it will distract them. But apart from the living God, how can we find true meaning in life? How can we find any kind of lasting joy when we ourselves, apart from God, are temporary beings? It is only in the Lord God that we find our our persistent dwelling, that we can see eternal life as a true option. But this freedom that I just described to you, Freedom undirected by a sovereign God can be a burden to us. I want, uh, want to think of an illustration for a moment. If you've got little children and you tried to teach them how to ride a bicycle, you might know what I'm talking about here. And even if you don't have children in that scenario, but maybe you were a child once, I think some of you probably were, and you were taught how to ride a bicycle, do you remember the emotion, the feeling the first time you are the one doing the pedaling and you are the one actually moving forward in a straight line and defying what in your mind was the law of nature that said when you get on a bike and try to bounce on it you will fall to the ground you like right when you're a little kid that's a law of nature you're going to fall but eventually you learn the technique you learn the secret to riding a bicycle your, your parents hopefully teach you how to do it properly and you begin to pump your legs and you begin to direct the bike and keep your weight over the, the center line of the bicycle. And before you know it, you're riding on your own. And you, you remember that freedom, that joy of, of the speed, of the air going through your hair, and, and remembering how free you felt when you first rode a bicycle. And then you might remind, remember that, that creeping fear of, oh no, now what? Right? How do I stop? What if I lose my balance? That car is coming quickly, what do I do? So the joy of freedom is so much more free and enjoyable if you are pedaling, but you're doing so with the knowledge that a loving parent gave you about what to do next. And you do so knowing that just a couple of inches from your back is mom or dad running alongside with you. So that until you are strong enough to do it on your own, you know that presence is there to catch you if you fall. So freedom is a wonderful blessing from God, but freedom without the guidance and direction of a loving Father is in many ways terrifying to us and could even become like a burden. When freedom has no direction, it is the same as wandering. Wandering might be fun for a little while, but it is ultimately wasteful and it trends towards selfishness. When we don't have a direction, our human nature tends to take over and we tend to just serve ourselves and please our own desires. We need the Lord to show us where to go. We need that light unto our feet and that lamp unto our path. And so Paul writes this section of chapter 7 as a benefit to us that we might not wander too long or too far. It describes some of the choices that a child of God gets to make. This passage eliminates a false notion that there is one perfect way of living out our lives, one perfect ideal set of choices that are the only way to please the Lord. Remember, remember to serve Him with contentment in, in whatever we are called to do is the order of the day and, and the theme of this chapter. No matter what station of life you've been called in, serve the Lord, use it for the glory of God. So there's not just one set way of living out life. If you are here today and you are a single person and, and you feel like, well, I, in order to have meaning and purpose, I've got to find a spouse, I've got to have kids, I've got to build a family. That's not necessarily the case. The Lord God works through single people. If you are here today and, and you are hindered by some sort of sickness or some sort of, uh, some sort of condition that keeps you from achieving the things you want to achieve, you might feel like your life is a waste. It is not. The Lord God uses every kind of people for his glory. And working under the constraints of whatever's holding you back might be the way by which God will display his grace in your life. So there is not one set way that God glorifies himself in all the people of the world. And this is a benefit to us because it washes away unnecessary guilt and anxiety for those who might feel that their station isn't the ideal station for faithfulness to God. Paul's wisdom helps us to evaluate our priorities and focus. And if we heed the things that we are taught here by the Apostle, it's going to promote in our hearts and minds a sense of good order. When we establish any kind of order, there will always be a first thing. There will always be something that starts off that order. And we need to keep Christ the first thing. The cares and the anxieties of life become less of a hindrance when they take their proper place behind the preeminence of Jesus Christ. These verses will help to promote undivided devotion to the Lord to the degree that is possible as fallen human beings. They serve to guard us against neglecting the Lord even for the sake of permissible and in some ways beneficial things that we might choose to do. And so Paul applies these general blessings to three specific areas of life where a believer may have the opportunity to make use of their freedoms. Let's start with the first scenario. Should I marry or should I remain single? So verse 32 states plainly, I want you to be without anxiety. Without anxiety in the the Greek is a compound word. uh, That means it's two words kind of put together to make one word. And the root of it is memnois. And so ah means without, is a prefix meaning without. And merimnois means division, means that we are to be without division. Anxiety there is literally to be divided in mind, to be torn between two, th- two things. That is the visual you should get if you were a Greek speaker and you understood the root of the word there, that you have anxiety when you are torn between two things. So the point of this emphasis is not to show that marriage is a union doomed to anxiety and that by contrast, singleness eliminates all anxiety. That's not Paul's goal. We know that's not the case because Paul lays out the details of what kinds of anxiety are native to each of these ways of living. And he starts with the unmarried person. He doesn't say that the unmarried man has no anxieties. He says that the unmarried man is anxious. What is he anxious about? He is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Now that's strange if the word merimnois means to be divided. How is he divided about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord? We understand this when we remember that no human being is completely without division. The fact that we are not omniscient creatures, as God is, ensures that. God, being omniscient, knows all things. But we, as human beings, are not all-knowing. We only know certain aspects of all things. And even in that regard, that would be a generous way to describe it. We we know certain aspects of a few things, right? We're human beings. And so if I want to understand and focus on something, I've got to set aside other things so I can focus on that one thing. God isn't divided like that. He knows all things at one time. We cannot totally eliminate division of mind. And so the unmarried person thinks naturally about caring for several things. He cares about his own needs. But then he wants to spend his attention glorifying the Lord. That's why he's anxious about it. Hundreds of choices each day must be made, each of which may affect his availability, each of which may affect his singularity of focus. And so that creates an anxiety in his heart. If you choose to remain unmarried, you're going to be anxious about the things of the Lord. And weren't the Corinthians experiencing a kind of anxiety like that? We've already read about how some in Corinth were battling over what is the holiest way to live. And there were even those in Corinth who suggested that the flesh was somehow inherently corrupt, but the spirit was not so corrupt. And so maybe the best thing to do would be to avoid all kinds of sexuality, so that you might not accidentally fall into sexual immorality. So even in the context of marriage, some of these Corinthians were saying, well, we should abstain from sexuality even in marriage so that we can be pure and holy unto the Lord. And Paul has had to clear that up for them, right? He's had to show them that that is is an unnecessary hindrance. It's an anxiety that they don't need to have. So the decision to marry or not to marry must be weighed carefully. Each comes with its own sets of anxieties. And consideration must be given to how it will impact our freedoms. If you choose to speak uh, to seek a spouse, in addition to those requisite cares that we have for our own well-being and our own needs, you will also add to them anxieties about caring for your spouse. And that's why the apostle Paul describes that a husband will, and to a degree should, be concerned about pleasing his wife. Shouldn't we be concerned about that, husbands? We should. Scripture tells us that if we have taken this covenant upon ourselves, then that is a responsibility that we have, that we should care for their needs, that we should look after their well-being, right? We are to have a sacrificial leadership to them. We are to provide for our wives and for our children the things that they need to the best of our ability. We are to give them protection and to look out for threats and dangers that might put them in harm's way. We should sanctify our bride through the washing of the word of God. We should disciple our children as their first pastor. So there are things that we have in mind, because of the covenant of marriage, that make our attention somewhat divided. We should be anxious about these things in a good kind of way, not in an unhealthy kind of way. A wife also will, and to a degree should, be concerned about pleasing her husband, right? She is called to be like a helpmeet to her husband to provide a sympathetic compliment to the gifting that God has given to him, to be willing to lay down her time and her effort to the benefit of the children of the home and and the spouse that loves her and provides for her. And so both husbands and wives will have anxieties in this life. If we choose that path, we choose to enter into the covenant of marriage, then there will be an extra layer of responsibility there. This concern for your other half is part of the beauty of marriage, isn't it? It trains us to think beyond our own needs. As I was preparing this, a uh, couple of saints that we know and love but haven't seen for a while came to mind. Many of you are real familiar with the Hammackers. The Hammackers the were an older couple that, that came to our church for, for quite a while. Uh, I think they, they started attending back in 2010, if I'm not mistaken. And Dolores, um, she loved her husband dearly, but even when they began to come to First Family Church, Herb uh, was suffering pretty deeply from the onset of dementia. And so here was a woman who loved the Lord and wanted to come to church and honor the Lord God, but because this was her husband, she made sure that Herb was coming with her. And she made sure that when he got confused, and when he had a need, or if there was something that arose that made it very difficult for him to be in the service, or if he needed to get up and walk around a little bit, that she would minister to his needs even in the midst of a service. And life at home was not totally easy for her. She was willing to sacrifice her comfort and her freedoms so that Herb would be looked after. And he had dementia for well into a decade. But her commitment to him and love for him meant that she, she was there for him. She didn't give up loving. Her spouse. Herb went on to be with the Lord, and not long after that, Dolores went on to be in heaven too. But I will not forget the example of godly love, of salt and light that I saw in the way that our sister Dolores cared for her husband and looked after his needs and was willing to put herself to the side so that he could have what was necessary for him. So, this concern for your other half is part of the beauty of marriage. Whether you choose to be married or not, some division of allegiance cannot be avoided. For we are called to obey the second greatest commandment as well as the first, right? The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second great commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so here, friends, we must remember that while the first commandment must always stay the first, we are also called, as an extension of loving God, to love one another. And that means that our attention will at some times be divided. But there are times when we overemphasize the second commandment and we allow it to interfere to a degree with the keeping of the first. And so a passage like this encourages us to be diligent to keep the proper order of things. Um, An example of this disordering and this is a a holy example, is if a man who is called to serve as an elder is putting his heart and his soul into the teaching of God's word, is shepherding a group of believers in a local church, and then something difficult comes up in the family. There is a child who has strayed from the faith who is causing a lot of disruption. There is difficulty between the husband and the wife in a a marriage sense, that elder then might need to, because of his commitment to his wife and his children, step down from his position as an elder in that church so that he can take care of his first ministry in his household. You know, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 tell us that the requirements of a godly elder is somebody who keeps their house in order. And so in order to do the job at church well, he's got to be doing the job at home as well as he can. And that there might be times when he needs to step away from that job at church in order to take care of the one that he has covenanted himself with and those little ones that he has been entrusted with. A single person who is free to focus on the Lord should also be careful not to live a life that is shallow in love towards others. Just because you don't have a covenantal relationship with a spouse, with a husband or a wife, does not mean that you should not be diligently loving the people that God puts into your existence. You should be a very good brother and sister to those who also call Christ Lord. You should be a wonderful neighbor to those non-believing people who are in your life and who run in the spheres of influence that you have uh, 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 an impact upon. The difference between the married and the unmarried is this, that the married person has made a covenant agreement to care for that wife or that husband and to look after those children. Marriage is a vow, and one cannot set aside the vow of marriage. It demands a consistent and holy keeping of the promise. And so in summary here, we see that marriage is a good thing. There are godly concerns to be expected and not all one's energy can be channeled into serving the Lord. We also see here that celibacy is a good thing and in some ways better because it offers you the opportunity to be more singularly focused on the Lord. There'll be a greater range of freedom and faithfulness as the unmarried man or woman can place a greater time investment and energy into growing nearer and doing the will of God. But there are unavoidable unavoidable anxieties here as well. And an improper view of our responsibilities can render even the freedom of singleness a burden apart from grace. So then Paul shifts gears, and in verses 36 through 38, he describes a second scenario. It's one that we touched on a couple of weeks back when we were looking at the section beginning in verse 25, and that is a situation that's a little outside of our cultural context. The second point is, should I follow through with engagement? Now, this section is in some ways a recap of what Paul has already spoken about. Engaged couples in Corinth were thinking that perhaps even though they were getting ready to be married, even though they had not yet gone through the ceremony and had consummated their marriage, they were thinking about that commitment and they were reconsidering their decision to be betrothed to one another. They were thinking perhaps it would be better for them to walk through life as two single individuals rather than one united couple. Paul's already played his hand here in the word that we've read and studied. He believes there are great benefits to doing that. Those two individuals might fully commit themselves to the Lord and be a huge blessing to the church and to the ministry of the spread of the gospel. But the determining factor is not just what is ideal, it's what is realistic. If your heart burns with passion, if you are not specifically gifted with the self-control to forsake godly sexual affection, then you should acknowledge your limits and follow through with your betrothment. Marriage would be then a safeguard to you, a defense for your purity and would help you to avoid a scenario that is worse than divided concerns, that being the moral fallout of sexual immorality. So can you handle not adding the complexity of marriage to the already complicated scenario of life? If you can, then so be it. That will be a glory to the Lord. There are no doubt clear advantages to that way of life. But remaining single isn't required. So if you're not equipped to live like that, if God has not bestowed upon you the resolve to be single-minded to that degree, then do not heap unnecessary anxieties upon your own head by insisting to yourself that you must adapt this standard. Now on a little cultural side note here, in the New Testament model of marriage, these betrothed individuals had made vows which carried a legal and a moral significance For them to decide against going through with their engagement, it was not as if they were simply just calling off the wedding and then going their separate ways. The covenant would still be in effect, at least to the degree that it had been consummated. So they are not yet fully husband and wife, but they are betrothed, and they would remain exclusively betrothed to one another in an asexual way for the rest of their lives. If marriage became the best option at some point down the line, then they could only marry one another. They couldn't just trade in this person that they had become engaged with for somebody else. And and the reason for that is because promises matter in the scripture. We cannot let the lax nature of our own culture redefine the importance of vows and promises. Just because we view marriage and engagement differently today than they did back then, that doesn't mean that we cannot learn from the scenario that's being brought before us by the apostle Paul. So there are other areas in life where we enter into formal promise agreements and we would do very well to consider the weight of those scenarios before we sign on the dotted line and commit ourselves to being involved with them. So here are some examples, and these are not properly covenants, but they are binding nonetheless. When you sign a rental agreement, right, you put your name on a lease. What are you doing? You're saying, I agree to the terms of this contract, and I, as a Christian whose yes is yes and whose no is no will abide by the terms of these contracts. I will not make up some excuse to get out of it. If the market tanks and it's easier for me to cut bait and run, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my very best to fulfill the obligations that I have put forth in this promise. If somebody is a Christian and they enlist in the army, they are putting upon themselves another set of anxieties that they will have to fulfill over the course of their enrollment term. So if you enlist for four years, you're going to have to give four years of, of heavily committed service to your country. And for some people, that's, that's a good direction to go. For somebody who is taking out a mortgage to buy a home, that's, that's a significant decision to make. And it shouldn't be made flippantly or simp- simply according to practical advice or wisdom. It should also be made with the thought in mind, I want to support my Lord. I want to take care of the gospel work that God has put into my life. And if I'm going to have to get a second job and constantly be so busy paying off the debt for this 30-year mortgage that I can't be involved with my church, I can't know significantly the people who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, then maybe God hasn't brought me to a place where homeownership is important to me right now. We've got to think about these promises that we make. Even if you were to co-sign for a loan, Let's say there's somebody in your life who, who wants to buy a house, but they're not quite responsible yet, don't have the experience, and they ask you to co-sign. When you put your name on that line, you are saying that I will back up this person's ability to pay. That's a significant commitment of your resources and your time. So as Christians, we need to be a people of promise. And we need to be careful about the vows and the things that we make because we want to say what we intend to fulfill. We don't want to just speak and then do something completely different than what we said we would do. So those are our first two scenarios. Marriage, whether to stay married or to fulfill marriage if you're engaged or betrothed. And the third scenario is should a widow remarry? Should one who was married and then lost their spouse, should they remarry or should they remain single? I appreciate the consideration that Paul gives to the body of Christ here. He, He cares for the various unique walks of life, that some in the Corinthian congregation might have to be dealing with. He looks at a special circumstance that doesn't apply to all of the church right then, but, is, but he sees that it's worth considering because there are several individuals who matter and who might have to make decisions like that. And so he deals with this situation, and we learn from the wisdom that he gives here. A wife is clearly bound to her husband for how long? Until her husband dies. And what should she do once her husband goes to be with the Lord? The question becomes, do I capitalize on my second chance to be single unto the Lord, or do I remarry? And there are many factors that have to be considered for someone who has to make a choice regarding that. Someone who is now much older in life may not have the same degree of sexual desire that they did earlier in their lives. Remember, one of the reasons to go through with betrothal and to, to find a good godly spouse is because it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But later in life, perhaps things have changed some and a person doesn't have that same drive. They've experienced the fulfillment of that within the bounds of marriage. And so they don't have that that drive or desire anymore. That should factor into the decision of whether one gets remarried or does not get remarried. Maturity is probably greater in that individual now that they have walked through life with a spouse for a time. And if she's been walking with the Lord for some years now, maybe the call of the heart's desire is significantly less than it was in her youth. There were fewer opportunities for a woman in that day to support herself financially, though it wasn't impossible for a woman to do so. And this is addressed specifically to widows and not widowers, you might notice here. Widowers might have a similar decision to make, but in the time of the New Testament, it was more of a given that they would probably remarry. But for for ladies, they had to consider, can I support myself independently? Do I have family to look after me, to help me out if I can't financially prepare... Uh, provide for myself there may be some children involved in this situation some might even be grown who can contribute to the financial well-being of that woman who is now suddenly single there is usually a a difficult emotional component to, to consider as well the idea of trying to unite yourself to somebody else to another soul after so many years in tight fellowship with your original husband that plays into the decision as well so taking all of this into consideration the main point now becomes this I have been for however many years somewhat divided in my anxieties. Christ was primarily my concern, but he wasn't my only concern. And now that I am no longer living under the restraint of that covenant, which is a good covenant, can I set those extra vows aside and can I now pour my life and my time fully in devotion to Christ and blessing my church? There is actually evidence in the New Testament that in the early church, a significant number of women devoted themselves to doing exactly that. You can read about it in Acts 9, verses 36 through 43. Tabitha was a faithful widow. She was restored to life after experiencing a great illness which caused her to pass away. There was so much mourning and weeping over her loss that they went and they got the apostle Peter hoping that perhaps he could do something about this. He comes in and he has everyone else leave and he prays over this widow and calls for her to rise and he raises her from the dead. She, she is miraculously healed before them. And then all of the widows, whom we are assuming she was a part of this group of widows who were serving the church, they rejoiced because she had been such a benefit and a blessing to the body of Christ in that area. You can imagine the, the benefit of a team of women singularly devoted to serving the church, how that might be a huge boost to the gospel. But not all widows were ready for that kind of commitment. And again, Paul wants these women to feel free from anxiety. In Christ, they have been given the freedom to choose, and Paul's urging them to take into consideration their own personal gifting, their dependence upon the Lord, the circumstances of their first marriage. And so if there is still a strong draw towards companionship, rather than risk potentially sliding into sin, Paul points them in the direction of remarriage. And if God has granted them with a contentment in him that does not long for a human companion, then she's free to live the remainder of her days as a single woman and to use that freedom to better serve and enjoy the Lord. These things have to be lined out in Scripture from time to time because human beings have naturally legalistic hearts. We tend to judge people when the Scripture is silent on something. We tend to judge people too harshly. We tend to not acknowledge their freedom in the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul is making it very clear here that a woman who chooses either one of these things should not be looked down upon. And again, remember, the opening line of this passage is, I want you to be free from anxieties, right? It should be clear to us that Paul is speaking about a matter or degree of quality that that has to do with our freedoms here. What he wants for us cannot be in conflict with what God wants for us. And God doesn't want us to be so carefree that we are infantile and unproductive and useless, but uh, but without anxiety. He wants us to be something better than that. He doesn't want us to just be free of anxieties and and also useless to the world around us. The point is that Paul wants us to abound in faith. We can develop anxieties about all kinds of things. And no station of life that God may place you in is immune to the temptations of having anxiety. Even when we find ourselves in a situation that seems ideally suited for peace and for rest, the vapor-like nature of this life Means that there will still be the temptation to worry about that tranquility and that rest passing and not lasting for so long. So there's always going to be division in our minds and in our hearts. But an order life is a life with structure and with priority. And for the Christian, the priority should have one preeminent focus, and that is Christ Jesus, who is our all in all. So are you single? If so, praise the Lord. Be a single person who's determined to glorify Jesus with their abundance of free time, with their lack of tangent commitments. Focus your time and attention on loving him with your whole heart. Give him your focus. Give him your your adoration and your praise and, and your worship. Are you a married person? Well, praise the Lord. Then worship the Lord God the best you can, especially by taking care of the commitments that you've made to your spouse and to your family. Be a godly husband. Be a godly wife. Care for your children in a way that God is glorified in the way that you raise them. Are you a widow? Praise God for your station. I know it's probably not the one you want to be in right now, but you are alive and you have the Holy Spirit. And so you can use the glory of God in you to still be an, in, an influence on the world around you. Bless the Lord God with your, your new singleness or find a new godly spouse that you can be a benefit to. Are you a student or a politician? Are you a lawyer? Are you even a slave, says Paul? No matter what station you are in in life, give the glory to Christ. Make sure that he is preeminent and primary in all that you do, that God's glory might abound in you. A person who has tasted of the grace of God has experienced a divine reordering of everything that is important to them. Each choice from that point forward should reflect that reordering. Just as Paul here is preaching of Christian freedom, we know that Jesus laid the bedrock of Paul's instruction, and he did so in part when he laid, uh, when he shared a parable recorded in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And the kin, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this is is to inform our hearts and minds about our attitude towards Christ as the first and, and preeminent thing in our lives. That when we have tasted of his grace, when we've seen the beauty of the empty tomb, and we've recognized that that resurrection means that we too can rise from the dead, that we too can live eternally in the presence of God, then everything else then finds its place under that first and most important thing. Having a little taste of heaven in some ways, friends, has ruined us for everything else, hasn't it? Nothing can compare with the sweetness of being near to God. And so whatever anxieties that we have lose their weight in light of this great discovery of God's redeeming gift. Let's praise the Lord for the instruction that the Apostle Paul has given to us. Let's pray together, and then our worship team will lead us in one more song before we depart. Almighty God, we thank you for this this day, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be in careful thought and consideration about whatever station of life you have particularly placed us in today. Father, each person here has a different story of how you're working in their lives, and there are some components of that story that we all share. We are all universally sinners. We were all universally unable to overcome our sin apart from you. All who are Christians here today, universally, have put their faith in Jesus Christ, have embraced him as their king, and now are blessed to have that authority ordering and guarding and directing their lives. And so, Lord God, help us to share in what is common, but also help us to recognize that you've made us each unique for a purpose. And so let our unique station, let whatever place in life you have brought us to thus far and whatever place in life you desire to take us, let that be a unique story to the wonder of your redeeming power in the life of a lost person. We are grateful, Lord God, to be called after your name. We are grateful, Lord God, to have certain responsibilities and, and, uh, and tasks placed before us. You have prepared many good things beforehand, ahead of time for us to do. And so we ask now for the strength and the wisdom to walk in those tasks and to glorify you with our obedience. We pray this all, Lord, through the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.